I need to get Zoe to go with me and introduce me everywhere. <laughs> when uh, I imagine Dr. Drury gets this as well, when somebody calls you an expert, you go, oh my goodness gracious, you know. <laughs> the expectations are way too high for that. Uh, we are so blessed to, um, to be with you. And uh, yeah, it's been uh, uh, exciting to think about having this kind of a program here. And uh, the Colson Fellows program was on a hiatus after Chuck Colson passed away in 2012. It was called the Centurions back in those days. Uh, Chuck started it back in 2004 and wanted to get about 100 people together each year to read the best books and to talk about them and get together and then find a plan to live it out. And people did that, and it was good. But when Chuck passed away, the program kind of dwindled because a lot of people just wanted to hang around with Chuck. <laughs> I wanted to hang around with Chuck. <laughs> and so um, when they wanted to reboot the program, John Stone Street, who was one of my students years ago, called me and asked me to uh, consider this. We, we prayed a long time after we said no and um, began and uh, the program had dwindled to nothing and this year we have about 300 people in the program, which is amazing. We've kind of, I always say we've out kicked our coverage, you know, we don't have enough people to, to do it, but I think we're doing it pretty well all things considered. And the fact of uh, expanding into uh, other countries, we do have outliers that have been through the program, but not a program per se. You're it. Okay, you're it. And uh, so it's up to you if any other countries have a program, it's because you've succeeded. If they don't, it's because you have failed. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm trying to put the pressure back on you right here, okay? <laughs> but um, seriously, uh, it's, uh, I have no doubts. You've got a great infrastructure, you've got a great passion, you've got great leadership, and I mean, what more can you say than, than just all of that? And uh, we're very, very excited. Um, I want to talk about worldviews. Um, a lot of you have just been kind of introduced to it, and some of you have been studying it from last year. You're, this is like where you've got worldviews in your mind. And I've been speaking on this subject for years and years all over the world, and it, it's interesting how it communicates so well in different countries. Uh, Dr. Drury is going to really fill in all, so much of the bones that I will be sharing with you about looking at how this applies to culture. In, our, in this cultural moment. And I'm just as excited as you are to uh, get to listen to him uh, today. But when we think worldviews, a lot of people, their eyes roll in the back of their heads and think it's just something that's mental, something that is uh, intended to be academic and cognitive, and it's not. So I thought the best thing that I could do for you would be to do just this. I'm gonna teach you how to misuse it, how to just flop. How to flop embarrassingly. Because in so doing, I'm going to be showing you how I think we should be using it in culture and how it is. So uh, I'm going to leave these PowerPoints with you, and you can make sure everybody gets a copy and so on. If you're trying furiously to take pictures or write things down, a lot of times when I speak, I was speaking at uh, over in uh, Adelaide at uh, what was the church? Hope. 
Hope Church. And every time there was a slide, of people would take pictures, boom, boom, you know, getting all the pictures there. That, that's a good way to do it. But we'll make sure that you get, you get all of this as well. So let's talk about worldviews. Let me ask you a question first. Oops. Let me ask you a question first. How does this work? <laughs> okay. Now, ideally, it's supposed to advance when I push the slide. Okay. So let me ask you this question. What could be the best life you could have if you could determine where you live, what you do, what you have, etc. What would be your best life? I don't say it out loud, but just kind of think. What would it be? And then secondly, so I try again here. That's going the wrong way. There we go. If you could be anyone alive now, who would it be? I mean, completely. Who would it be? I used to say, if you could be anyone, who would it be? And so, I want to be Elvis. I said, well, Elvis is dead. Okay, that would be easy. But um, if you could be anyone alive now, who would it be? Who would you trade places with completely? Now, I ask this of, of high schoolers a lot. And they're all over the map with this. And if I hear the word Kardashian again, I think I'm going to drop dead. Okay. But the reason I ask this is because when we talk about worldviews, we're really getting at the heart, the heart of who we are. Because it's not merely a head issue, it's a heart issue. You know? And so many young people, when I ask them these questions and they talk about, I want to have this, I want to live here, I want to have all of these things and do all these things. Oh, I want to be this person or that person. So I'm, and much, even though they're in Christian schools, rarely does it have anything to do with their faith. And many times when you, on your own, what drives you is not what people have been teaching you when you say that you believe, but where's your heart? And it's the conversion of the head and the heart that are crucial. So I'm, I'm going to jump on the head, though, a little bit here, if that's okay. Because you do need to ask why. Why is this the kind of person I want to become? Why would I trade places with, with this person? So, let's, let's misuse the Christian worldview a little bit. Let me give you four ways that we do this. The first is by taking the Christian worldview in isolation from other worldviews. And I'll, I'll explain to you in a little bit. A lot of people think the Christian worldview, the biblical worldview, is just let's study the Bible. What does the Bible say? And that's part of it, okay? But when you attack that word, worldview, you put it in a category of worldviews, right? Which means you, and we put things in categories, you have to compare and contrast them. So you really only understand the Christian worldview, not only in its uniqueness that you learn, but as you compare it and contrast it with the other worldviews. What's the difference between a naturalistic worldview and a transcendental worldview and the Christian worldview? It's in those distinctions that we really find the life that's, that's actually there. Here is the Indonesian soccer players. They scored a goal. And a Muslim and a Christian and a Hindu are thinking they're God. There's a worldview clash right there, right? 
We're fond of saying this at the Colson Center. Ideas have consequences. Bad ideas have victims. Bad worldviews do as well. And so when we talk about worshiping God and living for God and then thinking worldviewishly, we have to remember it's not just a matter of you choose red, I choose yellow. You choose chocolate, I choose vanilla. You choose atheism, I'll choose Christianity. That's not how it works. Because bad ideas, bad worldviews have victims. This is Phnom Penh, Cambodia. I was there uh, speaking. Lynn and I were visiting a, a Mercy Medical Center there. And uh, it's a wonderful Christian ministry. The, one of the best hospitals in all the whole country. And we were standing on the, the, the roof of uh, who's head of the Mercy Medical Center. That's where you go to eat in the summertime. It's cooler up there. Looking out over Phnom Penh. And I, I said to Lynn, I said, look at this. And over to the left was uh, the Mercy Medical Center. This is one of the buildings there. And thinking, there's that wonderful, wonderful Christian ministry over there. And then straight ahead, actually across the street from Mercy Medical Center is the largest Wat, the largest Buddhist temple, one of the largest Buddhist temples in all of Cambodia. And then straight ahead beyond those two was the killing fields. Pol Pot, the Khmer Rouge, 1975, 1979, one out of every four Cambodians was murdered by the communist regime. If you were educated, if you were a Christian, if you had any power, you were killed. And fascinatingly, two, three years ago, we had one of those survivors, she was only four at the time, four through eight, go through the Colson Fellows Program. She now lives in Norway and is leading a uh, ministry in Eastern Europe. She just interviewed her father, mother, and brother as they remembered those years and is putting it into a book. How they survived is interesting because they were teachers and all the teachers were killed as well. Fascinating story. But we're thinking, as we're standing there, I said, babe, we can see all three worldviews right here. The three major groups of worldviews right here. Theism, naturalism, and transcendentalism. Isn't that fascinating? probably seen this. This is big. The idea that all religions, to just be true to yourself, you can get along. Well, we know that doesn't really, really work that well, does it? This is, I live, in, Lynn and I live in a, an area of North Carolina that's very liberal. And this is probably the most popular bumper sticker. This and uh, Vote for Bernie Sanders are the two most popular <laughs> bumper stickers in Asheville right now. I wish it were true. We do need to coexist, you know, but at the same time, this doesn't mean they're all equal, does it? So what does it mean when we talk about Christianity? What does it mean when we think out loud about who we're becoming? A lot of times we as Christians love to worship. We love to study the Bible. We love our getting together. But there comes a point if we're really going to interact with the culture, we do have to get out of the bubble. We need to see the world through the eyes of those who are different. We need to let our hearts beat with theirs just for a little bit to understand so that we can, in one way or another, interface with it. In fact, tomorrow I'm going to talk about um, how the Apostle Paul says that he makes himself a slave to everyone and in order that he might win them. He puts himself in their place 
so that he can build a bridge to Jesus Christ for them. So here's the point. First, everyone has a worldview. True? So I've heard, uh, there was a girl, I was speaking in a high school group and we were talking worldviews and the girl raised her hand and said, I need to get one of those. I said, you have one. Or really, a, a worldview has you. It's part and parcel of being made in the image and likeness of God. We are created in his image and likeness and therefore we have questions. Therefore we are creative. Therefore we have a spiritual sense and so on. A worldview is, first of all, it's an explanation. It's a story as well, but it's also an explanation of where everything came from and how it got here and why it's here and where it's headed. We, believe it or not, everybody's thought about this over the years when I've talked to so many people all over the world. I'll talk to them about their worldview. What do you think about these things? And everybody has thought about them. Not all have come to some sort of conclusion, but they live as if they did. But not only is it an explanation, but it's an interpretation. 9-11 was a traumatic day, 2001, in the United States. When the Twin Towers in New York City were destroyed. That and the plane that crashed in Pennsylvania, over 3,000 were killed. And there were books written, articles written, sermons delivered, speeches delivered about why this happened. And it's very interesting because depending upon your worldview is how you interpreted why this happened and its impact. Your worldview is the means by which you interpret an event. Christians interpreted it one way. And Muslims interpreted it another, and Jews interpreted it another way, and so on. But it's not only an explanation and interpretation, but it's also an application. You, you live it out. Your worldview is really yours if you live it out. That's why I ask about the heart, you know. But the idea is that you say you believe these things, and you really believe them when you live them out. We apply them to life. So those three key words, explanation, interpretation, and application, it's a good way about thinking of it. Here's one of the reasons why we do this. Why do we think this way? And the animals don't think this way, but we do. We're made in God's image, as I mentioned, Genesis 1:27. Much of what we're finding in today's culture goes back to creation theology. At the very beginning, how God created us and why he created us. That great divorce between we're here and why are we here that C.S. Lewis talks about. We can transcend our lives. Ecclesiastes 3.11. He set eternity in our heart. I have a degree in abstract mathematics. And doing abstract mathematics, you think you can use a lot of numbers and you really don't use a lot of symbols more than anything else. But the idea being that uh, this symbol represents this and this, and you got that sideways eight, and that represents what? Yeah, infinity, and that's a real number. And um, there are differences in infinities and so on, but the idea that we can comprehend what infinity is, no, we can understand, we can't comprehend what infinity is, okay? 
Our minds are able to do that. God has set that concept in our hearts, not only uh, in, in the mathematical sense, but in the real sense as well. In the real sense as well. But it says, God has set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. In other words, God has set eternity in the human heart, and it drives us crazy. It drives us crazy. We don't understand an infinite God in doing what he's done from the very beginning of creation to the end of it. And then, of course, we have this innate moral sense, as the Apostle Paul is talking in Romans 2, about uh, the Gentiles and, and sin as it relates to them, and how, are, how come are they are uh, held accountable for the law they have, don't have the law? And he says, yes, they do. It's written on their hearts. And the idea being, we all have this innate moral sense. And Christianity is not morality, um, but it's not less than morality, okay? It is, it is actually more than that as we, as we develop what we're going to be talking about. So everybody has a worldview because we're made in the image and likeness of God. We have this sense of infinity. We can transcend our own existence and look at our lives. And then, of course, finally, we have this sense of uh, morality within us. And there are other factors, but these are three big ones, okay? And secondly, your worldview is how you answer the ultimate questions of life. Here's a well-known theologian, Shia LaBeouf. And he said in an interview... He says, sometimes I feel like I'm living a meaningless life, and I get frightened. I have no idea where this insecurity comes from, but it's a God-sized hole. If I knew, I'd fill it and I'd be on my way. I have no answers to anything, none. Why am I an alcoholic? I haven't a clue. What is life about? I don't know. I don't know. The best I can do is to learn from my mistakes and move forward, and that's what I'm trying to do. One of the things I like to do, as you know, is when we talk worldviews, is not necessary to always go to philosophers and theologians, but to go to the practical theologians that probably have more impact in our lives and our kids' lives than we want to admit. Interesting this, isn't it? What size is this hole? What goes in a God-sized hole? Pretty obvious. But he is one of many, by the way. I have a long list of celebrities that I pray for almost every day for them to come to Christ, for God to bring people into their lives. And uh, interestingly, he's had an up-and-down relationship. David Ayer, who's, in a, who's a director, one of the best directors, Fast and Furious, Training Day, those kinds of things. David Ayer's a believer, wonderful believer. And uh, when, he was doing, uh, when he was directing the film Fury um, with Brad Pitt and Shia LaBeouf, Brad Pitt, as you know, used to be uh, a follower of Christ. He, he said he was in his high school years in the youth group. Put all that behind him. I think I have a quote from him a little bit later on. And so there was David Ayer, the believer. There was uh, Brad Pitt, the non-believer. And here was Shia LaBeouf in the middle. And, uh, they, and they, the, if you, I don't know if you've ever seen Fury. It's an amazing tank, World War II. It's, it's great. It's great. It's great. All right. But, um, uh, and Shia LaBeouf in an interview magazine, in an interview, I guess hence the name of the magazine, was... Um, asked about his own life, and he mentioned that he became a Christian on the set of Fury. Now, since then, he's kind of been up and down, but you never know. Even when Kanye West had that big worship service, Shia LaBeouf was there. So was Brad Pitt, though, too. So go figure. So, but anyway, praying for people to come to Christ. 
particularly celebrities, the apostles to our kids, the apostles to this generation, that God might reach into their lives. And when I see somebody on the screen that I'm praying for, I listen differently than I used to. You know. So, anyway. The ultimate questions, there are many. I like these four. Ravi Zacharias uses the same one, so he agrees with me. So these four here. <laughs> Origin. Where did everything come from? Meaning, why are we here? Morality. How should we live and who decides? And then finally, destiny. What is, where is everything headed? Or what happens when I die? Worldviews address these issues, and as many more, but these kinds of things from beginning to end. Our church um, in, in, in Ohio was a very unusual and different kind of church. And um, it was very traditional in some ways, but we always did things differently and, and at different times. And at this one time, we had uh, the worship service consisted of four chairs on the stage, okay? Use your imagination and imagine there's a chair. Well, there's a, you don't have to use your imagination. Pretend like this chair is right here, okay? You got one chair here, and sitting in this chair is a Buddhist monk in his saffron robe sitting right here. Now, this is a, a big kind of a Baptist church. Sitting next to him is a, is a uh, Muslim imam. And Dr. Drury can probably explain more about what he's going to get. And then sitting next to him was a Jewish rabbi, and sitting next to him was a Christian. I got to play the Christian. I am one, but I got to play one on stage, okay? So the pastor, the, the worship service was this. The pastor would say, who is God? What is salvation? What are, what are scriptures? And questions like that, and the final question was, well, what happens when we die? And let each one answer the question. It, wouldn't that be fascinating? It's not like, let me tell you what Buddhists believe, which is important, but you got some guy in an orange robe here telling you what he believes. And it was uh, phenomenal because it brought in uh, people from all walks of life, all religions, to, to our church to listen. And um, as he went through each of the questions, you know, they, they were good, they were fascinating. When he gets to the last question, um, these individuals representing their faith, they were trying to do their best to be general, but everybody's got their own particular perspective, you know. But he asked the, the Buddhist uh, priest, what happens when you die? He said, whatever you want to have happen will happen. And that was his particular way. You know, if you want to come back, be reincarnated, fine. If you just want to be annihilated, that's fine too. Uh, the the Islam, Islamic uh, imam said, well, you know, you've got the pillars that you have to fulfill and the, the lifestyle and so on. And I think, I don't know if you're going to address anything in the Muslim perspective here, but, but the whole idea of if, if, you, if you're obedient and follow through, then there's a possibility you can go to paradise. The Jewish rabbi said, we don't know. We, we just don't know. You look at the Old Testament, there's some indication that maybe there's life after death, maybe not. Maybe you come back. I thought, we don't know. And of course, I'm sitting there thinking, this is really awesome. Because if there's anything God wants us to know that Jesus made sure was that what happens in the future. Let not your heart be troubled. In that upper room, Jesus had just told them three things that 
troubled them. One of them was this, one of you is going to betray me. Another one was, one of you is going to deny me. I'm talking about you, Peter. Not you, Peter. I'm talking about you, Peter. <laughs> and then he said, and I'm leaving and you can't come with me. And they were there. They thought this was inauguration. They were all going to get cabinet positions in his realm, you know. And then immediately after that, he said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Show us the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And then he goes on to describe what's going to be happening in the future. And he says it again. And he says it again. And he says it again. And so does Paul. And so does Peter. And so does John. And so you get to the end of the New Testament. And that's basically what I was saying is the uncertainties we heard are certain. Because that's where hope comes from. The ground of hope, we find we read in Colossians that both faith and love come from the soil of hope. And it was, it was remarkable. Those guys were just looking at me like, whoa, wow, you know. But oftentimes we forget how powerful the hope that we have in Jesus Christ is there. He came, he was God, he lived as God, he died, rose from the dead, and said, just wait. And it's that, it's that perspective, I think, that we often forget when we are looking at just the ultimate questions. I like to ask a, a person ultimate questions um, because you can tell what their worldview is. Like, just ask them what happens when we die. You can get a good indication of what their, what their uh, worldview might be. Uh, this uh, little picture here just gives you a, a good pictorial representation. Now, I don't want you to think that it's, these are the only three. These are huge categories. Okay, um, what I'm going to do is just take you just to visit each one of these just for a moment. Okay, for some of you, this is brand new. So I want you to have some uh, basic understanding of what we're getting at here. Uh, and thirdly, thinking from a worldview perspective helps the world make sense. Just realizing that everybody probably falls into one of these categories. It's pretty good. You, you can understand because there are, what, how many? Tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of religions, you know? And so this helps that. Here's a fascinating picture of a big man and a little woman in a chair. If you take a few steps to the right, this is what is there. Okay? So let me ask you this. Which picture is the correct picture? Which one? Yeah, both of them are, aren't they? Depends on your perspective. And in many ways, those who are Muslim, those who are Jews, those who are atheists are trying to answer the same questions we are, but they're looking at it differently because of the basic assumptions they have about their worldview. Okay? And it helps me to keep that in mind. It helps me be more gracious to people as well. Now, here's Prince William. Not the best picture for a royal. But if you take the picture from the front, that's what he's doing. Perspective is everything, isn't it? Right? Right? Or how about this little boy in the snow? In fact, we, our daughter called us this morning, and it's snowing in North Carolina, and she was getting, she's got four little boys, and getting them all tucked up to go out and roll around in the snow. 
But if I, if I were to say, if I were to say, just for example, you've, you've already seen it, but what is happening here? To help write a story about this picture, you'd, you'd have a hard time, wouldn't you? I mean, you got a boy in snow. Is he having a trouble? Is he stuck? What? But you give it a bigger picture. Ah, okay, he's playing in snow with other kids. So, so you've answered one question by getting a broader perspective. That's what a worldview does. You answer some things about life by getting a broader perspective that worldviews give you. But still got some questions. So where is he? And so on. And then you get the full picture. And this is at Hawaii Kai Church in Honolulu. They're all playing in the snow. It doesn't snow on Oahu. So now I've got more questions. And that's often what happens. The more you know, the more you learn. It doesn't answer everything. You get more questions, deeper questions sometimes, broader questions sometimes. But that's the nature of Because this is still on that side of that, that dark mirror. All right? One day we'll see fully. One day we'll see clearly. And then fourthly, your worldview is your declaration of what is most important in your life. One of the things we get to do a lot that I've gotten to do a lot is to tell people they've got worldviews because they don't know. I spent um, many years going in and out of the Soviet Union lecturing at universities, talking about things related to worldviews. And uh, most of them had only, only knew their own worldview in a positive way, the dialectical materialism, the atheism, and thought that if you believed in God, there's something wrong with you because only old women and children believe in God thinking people don't. And we would go in and lecture at these universities and they would be this gobsmacked thinking these people are, I mean, they're standing up and not drooling and they're talking about God. At one university outside of Moscow, the University of Tver, which is where the first Soviet was uh, uh, instituted, by the way, and... Um, it's a beautiful university, very powerful university. And uh, after I spoke and answered questions, I, I lectured for an hour and then took questions for an hour. It's great. It's great. This this fellow came up to me, very large fellow, had long black stringy hair, big big black beard. He's wearing all black, and he was taller than I am. I'm I'm six two. I have to look up to Mark here, of course. He's even taller than Mark would be. Okay. And he looks down at me. Well, he told me that he threw an interpreter that he was a professor of astrophysics. So pretty smart. That's what I wanted to be. I wanted to be an astrophysics. I wanted to be a mission specialist for NASA. That was my dream. So I'm looking up at this guy, and he said, he said, Dr. Brown, according to you, I am a naturalist. That's that's an atheist. And I said, okay. And then he looked away and started doing this with his beard, you know. And then he looked down at me and said, I don't think I want to be a naturalist. And then he did this again, and then he walked away. But notice, just that, what a, that was a beautiful moment in some ways, for him to look at his own faith, his own life, say, this is it, is this really what I want? Because he'd never been exposed to the whole idea of worldviews and thinking, you know. And that's often what Christians get to do. We get to do that a lot. You do that well. Okay, let this square... I said it again. This is a three-sided square. Let the, this triangle. You never know I have a degree in math. Let this triangle represent every person's life. 
Okay? And at the base, of course, is a worldview. Your worldview is the fundamental views that you have about yourself and the world. Okay? Built on that are your values, the things that are important to you, the priorities and preferences you have in life, how you spend your time, how you spend your money, and so on. Why are those your values? Because you see the world this way. You can look at the values of an atheist, you can look at the values of a, a Hindu, they're different than yours because you have a worldview as a Christian. Some are the same, by the way, just because we're human, but some are, some are different. And then, of course, behavior. You do what's important to you, and why is it important to you? Because it's your worldview. That's your worldview. Um, one of my times to the uh, Soviet Union, I was in Ukraine, and... Um, they had about 200 and some t teachers there from all over, and one group of teachers, they were actually from a high school, college high school, and uh, there were about a dozen of them. And uh, they came, and I spoke on worldviews. I did basically what I did here. Here are the three major worldviews. And, so and um, they were just so angry. Who does this guy think he is? You know, because their worldview was naturalism, and they, they'd lived with that, they'd been taught that, and so on. Here I was talking about these other worldviews as them being something that somebody could really think about as being true. They were very angry. And they came back the next day. I could tell they were angry because they, the way they looked, of course, a lot of Ukrainians look like they're angry all the time anyway. I, I, I say that because I was a senior executive with a Ukrainian company for a number of years, and uh, they, they were angry. Um, some of them are really good friends still. Um, but as the week went on, God began to do some things in heart because they would listen to the lectures and Q&A and they'd go back and talk about it, talk about it, talk about it. The last day of the conference, I was speaking that morning and they came up and they surrounded me. And they gave me this beautiful coin commemorating when Ukraine broke away from the Russian regime. So I want you to have that to remember us. Because last night, we changed our worldview. That was the only vocabulary they had to talk about coming to Christ. It was a worldview shift. And you know when you come to Christ, it really is a worldview shift. Okay? And so, when we think about how all that comes together, it's a beautiful perspective of how we can understand our own faith in the context of the world. Because what it is, is we answer those three questions and it really gives us an understanding of reality, how it is, right? So let's talk about each one of them real quick. First, naturalism. Naturalism, according to the world as we see it, if you can't measure it, if you can't one way or another visualize it, then it, it, it's not real. All that exists is the physical world. Everything is physical, nothing is metaphysical. Everything is natural, nothing is supernatural. Here's a one sentence description. I'm gonna do that for all three of these, okay? Humanity and the universe came into existence and operate completely by natural and physical forces. You get it? Physical. We are an episode between two oblivions. We have a beginning and an end. I try to use this square, each one of them I have. Let's let this square represent everything that exists. Inside is nature, the natural world, the physical world. Outside of it, there's nothing there. And now have a definite beginning and a definite end. The big bang and then the big rip. 
with a big freeze, depending upon how your view of theoretical physics is, it's just going to go away. Speaking of Brad Pitt, what, what movie is this from? Can you tell? Yeah, Fight Club. Chuck Palahniuk's, I think, his best book, by the way. But he says, you are not special. You are not a beautiful or unique sunflake. You are the sunflake. Snowflake. What, what is a sunflake, you know? <laughs> Maybe a sun chip, but not, okay. You are the same decaying organic matter as everything else. We are all part of the same compost heap. That's the description. That's true. If naturalism is true, we have no value. If naturalism is true, we have things have only have value if we give it to them, not inherently. Therefore, you can see the outworking of some of the things I think we're going to be talking about in culture today. There's no God that has any sway over our decisions. It's up to us to give value and to decide direction. What is the meaning of life? Man is nothing but what he makes of himself and so on. No God. Now what? I didn't know secular humanists had missionaries. They don't ring your doorbell, but they come in on your that little rectangle that you have that shines at night. Yeah. Particularly those of your children. Hedonism. These are the outworkings of it. I, I would go into more depth over time. Nihilism. The nihilistic dating agency for people with nothing in common. Like, the word nihilism means nothing, as you know. Yeah. Because it's true, it's nothing. Everything is nothing, it just happens to be here. Tom Nagel up at NYU, my favorite atheist, by the way, because he's so honest. He says, it isn't just that I don't believe in God, I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. He's, he's being honest. He realizes as a philosopher, you can't prove it. It's more or less a choice of what you're making. So if we have a chart, well, we do have a chart. Um, those four questions, origin, meaning, morality, and destiny, how does naturalism answer them? The origin of everything, what's natural means. However it happened, there was no God involved. It was a fluctuation, a quantum fluctuation in a, um, a desperately empty world. Meaning, there is no meaning. It's up to you to decide. Morality, you decide. Destiny is annihilation. And see how that fits together, how it answers those questions. And the implications of these things are important. That big question mark, meaning in life, it's up to you to decide. So now we have this cascade of the most important thing is to identify yourself. And your self-identification is probably sexual or it's uh, ethnic or racial or however you want to go with it. Many believe that Christians are the ones that keep scientific truth back. We're the ones that, um, we're the ones who don't believe that science has all the answers. I will tell you this, whatever science discovers is true will not contradict the word of God. It never has. 
It may contradict some Christian's interpretation of the Word of God, but it's, it doesn't do it at all. Did you know that since 1900, uh, two-thirds of all Nobel Prize winners have been Christians? Two-thirds. And then another 22% have been Jewish. Even in physics. In fact, uh, over 90 have been of uh, the physics Nobel Prize winners have been believers. I try to get Richard Dawkins to acknowledge that, but he doesn't. All right, second worldview, transcendentalism. It's a long word, but I, go, I went to C.S. Lewis for this. The world as we want it. He calls it the um, life force view. That is, there is no God out there, but the, it's a life force that's in and through everything. And he calls it, isn't this the most wonderful thing that we've ever invented? Because God is not out there. God is right here. Everything is right here. And if I mess up in some religions, in the transcendental worldview, you get another chance. And another chance. And another chance. Until you get it right. Trans, this, this worldview, trans, humanity and the universe are the physical manifestations of true reality, which is completely spiritual and impersonal. These are overstatements because the nuances of transcendental religions is, uh, is, is, is vast. Because you, we're talking, of course, Hinduism, some forms of Buddhism, Taoism, and so on, the, 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 the spiritual parts of that. But by and large, even though like in, in Hindu in, in India, um, you have uh, some forms of it have 300 million gods, and you choose from among those. But the idea basically is that every, everything that exists is just one single whole living cosmos of which we're a part. You're a drop in that ocean. But now because of whatever reason, it's the time of the, the cycle of life. Now through the yin and the yang, you have male and female, light and dark, uh, physical and spiritual and so on. And the physical is here now, and eventually in the future, it's all going to go back to the one. And you got to get out of this cycle of birth and rebirth yourself individually. And when everybody does it, we go back to the one. It's the force of Star Wars. Transcendentalism says, yes, there's a physical world, and outside of that, it's nothing. But nature is God. We call it God. But essentially, it looks a lot like it looks a lot like naturalism, doesn't it? In some ways, it is a spiritual naturalism, not necessarily a god you can have a relationship with. But to, as Obi Wan Kenobi says, you stretch out with your feelings, right? You stretch out with your feelings. One well-known philosopher says. Ultimately, the force is the larger mystery of the universe. And to trust your feelings is your way to that. Notice, not your mind. It's your feelings for the most part. And there's lots of perspectives. And I mentioned the Eastern religions, for the most part, have this at their core. Um, it's very popular in uh, uh, among celebrities, for example, uh, Rabbi Harold Kushner wrote a book and he describes this as of an infantile religion, he says. You have all the benefits of spirituality without any of the responsibility. 
And there you see uh, the Kabbalah movement, which is a, a transcendental movement within the Jewish faith. Uh, that just those red strings around the wrist that you can get, they're $39.95 a piece. Keeps the, actually keeps the bad karma from uh, getting into you. But you've got Scientology and Buddhism, you know, you see uh, Orlando Boom there, he's um, Scientologist, and Richard Gere is the founder of the New York uh, Buddhist Society and so on. Um, and Tom Cruise, of course, in Scientology, I just mentioned. And the high priestess. What's your purpose in life? You've got to figure that out yourself. Look within. Which is um, not just a transcendental thing. Now it's basically the, the, everywhere. That's where the, you are the critical mass of all meaning for, for your life. And therefore you should, should look there. Okay, I told you those would be quick. But it gives you a feel for that, doesn't it? You see the difference between those two. Transcendentalism, origin, well, whatever exists is derived from the one, whatever the one is, the force, Brahman, and all those things, whatever. The meaning in life is to recognize our oneness with all things. Morality is determined mainly by unity and harmony. And destiny is rebirth, that samsara, that wheel of rebirth and rebirth, reincarnation it's called. And you go and ultimately make it back, back to the one. In Hebrews, the writer says, just as man is destined to die once, and after that, face judgment. It's the beginning of the sentence, but notice these two clauses. Just as man is destined to die, how many times? Once. once. Not the many times that you see. And after that, to face judgment. Notice how that argues against naturalism, because we die, and then we face judgment. There's something that, there's an evaluation which occurs after, after death. So this one passage is, is troubling, at least from our worldview perspective of the other worldviews and how they see, how they see life. Theism is the view that there's a world that came from God's hand. This is often called monotheism. The idea that there is one God that created everything. He is responsible for it. The, a good way to summarize it is this way. Humanity and the universe are created and supervised by God who has revealed himself to humanity. Humanity and the universe, two things. We separate them because humanity is distinct. We look at the universe, it does not look at us. Okay? Humanity and the universe are created by and supervised by God who's revealed himself to us. And that's important. He has spoken. If you look at the square, here's the square. The natural world exists. God is outside. In fact, there was a time when there was no square, just God. But this is really deism, not so much theism. Theism, rather, has this God is both eminent and transcendent, both of these things. That's why we can interface with him, we can pray to him, and he can intervene for us and intercede for us as well. And there's a theism created by God, there's the origin of all things, determined by God, the meaning, morality is determined by God, what does he, what are his rules, what is his character and will for us to follow, and destiny is eternity with or apart from God. The Christian version is, is, by, is an, uh, an abstract of this, but... 
The reason it is so powerful and the reason it is the truth is because of the person who embodies it. And that's the person of Jesus. There are theistic religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, all believing basic things about one God. But the person of Jesus Christ is the difference. You can say 5 plus 5 equals 11 or 5 plus 5 equals 99. Which of those is true? I know you're not math people, but... Uh, <laughs> well, they're both false, right? But one of them is closer. And in the same way, the monotheistic religions are closer to the truth by believing in God. That's why I think so many uh, Muslims and uh, the Jews that we know are coming to Christ because they're kind of set up for that. But it's the person of Jesus Christ that becomes the watershed. In fact, it's the person of Jesus Christ that determines our ultimate destiny as well, right? In fact, uh, I like to think of Christianity as Christus Nexus, Christ at the center. Christ at the center. In fact, there's no such thing as a Christian school. Schools can't be Christian. Only people can. So I always call them Christ-centered schools. We have a school here, and our focus, our midpoint, is, is, is Christ. Our Christ-centered school. I don't know what to say about Christian jewelry, though, because that just makes sense. I mean, <laughs> Christianity is Christ, says John Stott. Take Christ from Christianity, and you disembowel it. There is practically nothing left. Christ is the center of Christianity. All else is circumference. So we take that and the uniqueness of the theistic worldview as played out in Christianity. Humanity and the universe are created by and supervised by God who has revealed himself to humanity through his creation and his word. We see that in, in Paul, don't we? We see the invisible attributes of God played out in what he has made. And his word, and the word, of course, is twofold. The written word and the incarnate word. In all of that together, you know, he tells Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You know, everything you want to know about God is in the person of Christ. And then God gives us explicitly in his word, his written word, uh, more about himself. And so we see, what does it mean following Christ? Again, very similar to the theistic perspective. But the meaning in life is to glorify and to love God and love others. That is specified in the written word, right? Morality is determined by the character and will of God. Not only what he says, but who he is. And then our destiny determined by a relationship with Christ. Now, these are the worldviews, and this becomes the foundation for so many things. And I'm going to, hmm, let me just do this real quick. The way I, I, I did this when we wrote this so long ago was to look at ultimate reality. What is ultimate reality? Can you know it or not know it? If you can know it, then you'd say, okay, you say if it's physical and material, then you're naturalist. If you say ultimate reality is totally spiritual, then transcendentalist. If you say ultimate reality is a personal God, then you would be in theism. And then these kind of spin out from, from all of that. That's in our book, I think. Is it? Okay. And if you say it's unknowable, then it's, that is, we can't know the future, that you're basically agnostic, and, uh, which feeds right into most, a lot of postmodern and those kinds of things. I'm sure you got all that. The, um, 
Now, here's something that really impacted me. Oswald Chambers, you probably know Oswald Chambers about him. Just wonderful, wonderful. We, we've read My Utmost for His Highest and so on. He had a friend that wrote him and said, you know, I've been teaching the Bible, I've been teaching theology for so long, I'm going to need to take a break. Some people say I should study psychology and philosophy. I don't want to do that. I want to study more. I need to get deeper in the Word, deeper in the Word. And um, so what do, what do you suggest? And this is what Oswald Chambers, of all people, says to him. My strong advice to you is to soak, soak, soak in philosophy and psychology until you need, until you know more of these subjects than you ever need consciously to think. It is ignorance of these subjects on the part of ministers and workers that has brought our evangelical theology to such a sorry plight. The man who reads only the Bible does not, as a rule, know it or human life. Isn't that interesting? A lot of Christians say, oh, no, 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 that's not right. But it is right. I'm not saying you don't study the Bible. You do even more so. But we look at the world. That's where Paul says, I make myself a slave to everyone that I may win them. I want to know what they're thinking. I want to know where their heart is so I can interact with them. All right, that was number one. Now, these, are, these last three are very quick, okay? Or quicker, I should say. <laughs> First... Um, remember, how do you misuse a, a Christian worldview? You keep it away from the other worldviews. So all your learning is, is one thing without understanding worldviews are much broader. This cultural moment needs believers who are worldview thinkers. Oh, we need people who love God and love his word. But in addition to that, to, uh, to love the world around us because God wants us to, and to understand where they're coming from and how we can build a bridge to them. And we'll talk more about that tomorrow. But secondly, we misuse the Christian worldview by making it an agenda and not a vision. You know the difference between the two? An agenda, short-term goals. Doom, 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 doom. A vision is, this is what I want to become. A vision for a business is, what kind of business do you want to have in 10 years from now? A vision for a person is, what kind of follower of Christ do you want to be 10 years from now? Too many Christians, too many Christians just do the same thing over and over again. A Christian says to me, I've been a Christian 30 years. I ask him, have you been a Christian 30 years or have you been a Christian one year 30 times? What is your vision? What, is, what are some things you want to be doing as a follower of Christ that you're not doing now? What are some things you want to know? What are some places you want to go and do? You know, have a vision. And, and it may, you may not meet exactly what you want, but moving in that direction. That's why in the Colson Fellows Program, we have everybody put together a three-year plan. As Eisenhower says, plans are nothing. Planning is everything. Once you get your mind in the mode, I want to grow, it's amazing what God will do to, and what God will bring in your life. But most Christians just boom, 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 right? Screw tape. Little demon. I said Wormwood's a little demon, excuse me, screw tape's his uncle. And he's saying this about his patient, this guy that became a believer, he's really upset. That wormwood did not keep him from becoming a Christian. So Uncle Screwtape says, the real trouble about the sit your patient is living in is that he is merely Christian. They all have individual interests, of course, but the bond remains mere Christianity. What we want, if men become Christians at all, is to keep them in a state of mind I call Christianity and. Here's the agendas, okay? 
Christianity and, you know, Christianity and the crisis, Christianity and the new psychology, Christianity and the new order, Christianity and faith healing, Christianity and psychical research, Christianity and vegetarianism, Christianity and spelling reform. If they be Christians, let them at least be Christians with a difference. Substitute for the faith itself some fashion with a Christian coloring. Don't let them believe in mere Christianity following of Christ. Os Guinness says, there is no one Christian form of politics any more than there is one Christian form of poetry, raising a family, running an economy, or planning a retirement. Many ways are definitely not Christian, but no one way is alone. And you know, the parameters of Scripture give us in all these areas, but families will do different things. But by and large, somebody will tackle and say, this is the Christian way to do this. This is a Christian way to deal with your child. This is a Christian way to deal with their... Whatever, and that becomes a life, and that takes on a life of its own. Speaking of Brad Pitt, he writes this. He said, "I had a this is in excuse me in Parade Magazine. I had a crisis of faith when he was a, a teenager in high school. I thought you had to experience things if you want to know right from wrong. I'd go to Christian revivals and be moved by the Holy Spirit, and I'd go to rock concerts and feel the same fervor. Then I'd be told that's the devil's music. Don't partake in that." I wanted to experience things religion said not to experience, just because you've been told no. You don't have children like that, do you? When I got untethered from the comfort of religion, it wasn't a loss of faith for me. It was a discovery of self. I had faith that I'm capable enough to handle any situation. And $100 million helps too. Yeah. But he was at Kanye West uh, worship service, so there you go. Oops, already, already, I took that out, I thought. I did that earlier. And here's an agenda. There have been men before now who got so interested in proving the existence of God that they came to care nothing for God himself. As if the good Lord had nothing to do but exist. There have been some who were so occupied in spreading Christianity that they never gave a thought to Christ. I know a lot of people like this. A worldview is not a comprehensive knowledge of the Bible. Now, that's important, but that's not what a worldview is. It's not a systematic, systematic theological system. It's not a training in apologetics, and it's not a blueprint for social and political movements. It's a way of seeing the world, hopefully through the eyes of Christ, so that you can better minister to the people and the culture in which God has placed you at this cultural moment. And thirdly, Misusing the Christian worldview by making it only cognitive and not transformative. Tick off the right boxes. Yay, I've got a Christian worldview. The Barna people drive me nuts. Only 17% of professing Christians have a, have a Christian worldview, I'm thinking. And that's because they filled out this survey and didn't do it the right way or whatever. Drives me nuts because it's a heart thing. A lot of people can say they believe and not, you know, but... Remember, a worldview is an explanation and interpretation, and then it's an application. It's a view of the world and a view for the world. You see the difference there? It's a view of the world, how you see it, and then it's actively a way in which you live in it. After, this, after his patient got saved, Screwtape says to Wormwood, listen to this, it remains to consider how we can retrieve this disaster. 
The great thing that is he got saved. The great thing is to prevent his doing anything. Okay, he's made a, made a decision for Christ. Don't let him do anything with it. As long as he does not convert it into action. It does not matter how much he thinks about this new repentance. Let him, if he has any bent that way, write a book. Let him write a book about it. That's an often an excellent way of sterilizing the seeds which the enemy, God, plants in a human soul. That's why we must act on what we believe. All right, fourth. You're wondering if I would ever get there before the time. Misusing the Christian worldview by disregarding the challenges to the Bible. This is a tough one, but it's important. Because when I go about in Christian schools, I've been in over 200 Christian schools around the, country, around the world. And what I'm finding more and more, um, not so much elementary kids, but middle school kids and high school kids, you know, through 6 through 12, let's say, are asking questions about the Bible, about Christianity, about the world, and so on. They're not asking questions about LGBTQ and those kinds of things because they're getting all the information they need on their smartphones. And we're not saying anything to them about it. We're not the last ones to say anything. We're not saying anything about it. Unless we say they're going to hell and we drop the microphone and think we've done something for God. But disregard the challenges. Here are some things that I, questions I've been answered. I need to revise this, um, add to this. Questions I've been asked over the last uh, 18 months, uh, 30 months. Questions about God. Doesn't science prove that God doesn't need to exist? How do you respond? If he does exist, why does God not make his presence more real? Why does he let bad things happen to people like children getting abused by adults or dying of cancer or a natural disaster? Kids have questions like this. How do you respond? You have questions like this, right? It's not just them. And thinking Christians, we need to respond in ways that matter. Caleb's going to talk about atheism and the, the new atheist perspective. You're doing that tomorrow, today? Okay, okay. Anxious to hear that. Questions about the Bible. How can you have a book from God that was written by people? Why the Bible and not the Koran, the Upanishads, or other holy books? Why did God order Israel's army to kill all the people, including children, in the conquest of Canaan? Why does God order executions for disobedient children, gays, and people who work on the Sabbath? In other words, the Old Testament and the New Testament. You know, you go to Leviticus. You go to you know, Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. Whoa, I mean, that's brutal. Can't even have a tattoo, right? How do, how do you deal with that, particularly when people criticize people who believe in the Bible by quoting these passages? What do you say? Why do so many Bible heroes have a lot of wives? Why can't we? <laughs> this guy was hilarious. Why can't we? You know? I said, you're in fifth grade. Why are you asking? That? <laughs> why, why are so many Christians so close-minded and mean-spirited? Why do Christians hate gays and Hispanics? I don't know why. I think the Hispanics was the immigration thing. But How come Christians still sin as much as everyone else? They just don't know you. Okay. <laughs> How come Christians dislike each other? Why are there so many denominations? Why do churches spend so much money on their nice buildings while so many people suffer from poverty and disease? 
if Christianity is true, then why are there so many other religions who think they are right and Christian, Christians are wrong? If Christianity is true, why haven't most people in the world had an opportunity to hear about it? I got others as well. But you get the flavor here. And if they come and ask us, we need to have or need to know where to go for, for good responses to that. There are, there are great responses, easy responses that both resolve and in some cases solve these questions. But most Christians don't know. And so thinking worldviewishly means we know that they're asking these things. We know that they're struggling with these things and we want to respond to them. I'm going to close with this. I think I close with this. Um, this was in a magazine, Portland Magazine, a number of years ago before uh, Christopher Hitchens passed away. In fact, he's in the book that you've got, isn't he? He's a well-known atheist. He passed away five years ago. Was it like that? Something like that. He wrote the book, God is Not God is not good, how religion poisons everything. Now, Marilyn Sewell is a Unitarian Universalist minister, which is basically a transcendental religion. She calls herself a Christian, a liberal Christian, uh, but she's really much more transcendental. Christopher Hitchens is an atheist. An atheist. Okay, so now listen to this conversation. The religion you cite in your book, she says, is generally the fundamentalist faith of various kinds. I'm a liberal Christian, and I don't take the stories from the scripture literally. I don't believe in the doctrine of the atonement, that Jesus died for our sins, for example. Do you make a, distinct, a distinction between fundamentalist faith and liberal religion? And he replies, only in this respect. I would say that if you don't believe that Jesus of Nazareth was the, was the Christ, in other words, the Messiah, and that he rose again from the dead and by his sacrifice our sins are forgiven, you're really not in any meaningful sense a Christian. Now this is the atheist talking to her. And she says, oh, I disagree with that. I consider myself a Christian. See, that's, that's the end. If I consider myself a Christian, I am one. I believe in the Jesus story, a story as narrative. And Jesus is a person whose life is exemplary that I want to follow. But I do not believe in all that stuff I just outlined. And he says, I simply have to tell you that every major Christian, including theologians, <laughs> including theologians, has said that without the resurrection and without the forgiveness of sins, what I call the vicarious redemption, he's not the only one that calls it that, by the way, it's meaningless. In fact, without that, it isn't even a nice story, even if it's true. And she says, it doesn't really matter to me if it's true, literally. It matters to me whether the story has efficacy for my life. Notice the, in, the way the internalization of truth. But listen to his response. Well, that's what I meant to say. When C.S. Lewis, for example, says this, if this man was not the son of God, then his teachings were evil. Cause... If you don't believe that the kingdom of heaven's at hand and you can get to it by the way, the truth, and the life offered by the gospel, then there's no excuse for telling people to take no thought for the morrow. For example, as he did, it would be evil nonsense. In other words, if Jesus wasn't who he said he was, then all the things he was telling people to do, it's evil nonsense. So, one of the things we face a lot, you do in, here in Australia, we do in America, is apathyism. So when it comes to these big issues, we find particularly our young people acting with apathy and lack of interest toward anything meaningful about life. How can you make people care? How can you make people believe? You can't. That's why we commend the gospel, hopefully through what God is doing in our lives 
and through our love for them. And unfortunately, persecution, hardship, is one of the great ways that God gets people's attention. So four things and I'm done, real quick. Practical applications, you, I, we must know and understand the Christian worldview. Not just know it, but understand it. And that's a constant thing. That's why the Coastal Fellows Program, we're constantly talking about it and its implications and going deeper in it. And secondly, you must know and understand the other worldviews. Other worldviews. My wife will tell you, I love watching um, documentaries on, particularly on issues related to space and to theories of time and uh, theoretical physicists and so on. That's my inclination. And there's so much they say that it glorifies God. They don't even realize they're saying it. Physical. Thirdly, communicating knowledge and understanding. We do it in ways that are important. We do it in ways that are meaningful. We do it in ways that are compelling. Nowadays, and I'll talk some about this tomorrow, uh, particularly young people, they love stories. They need, you, I can tell you what, did you need to be forgiven and did you need to forgive, but I can tell you stories about Nelson Mandela and others who are forgiving. And it, that just overwhelms you. And you, you see it in action. And then finally, you gotta live it. There's nothing more compelling than a life following Jesus Christ. And that's not why you do it. You do it because you are loved. You know, God made you so that he could love you. Yeah. Not that we would love him, but that he could love us so that we love him in return. You know? And all that converges, I think, for what we do when we talk about worldviews. So that's why we're here. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much for your goodness. Thank you so much for your power. Thank you so much for giving us light in the darkness. We really need grace. Uh, so much. We really need your power. Just as uh, Caleb was reading that prayer this morning about the idea of having power, you need to kick out the walls of our mind and our heart so that we can bring in the depth and the breadth, uh, the height of, of the love of Jesus Christ so that we understand it and, and embody it within ourselves to share to the world outside. So bless all of us here right now, Lord, that we might understand, that we might live for you, for your glory. Uh, bless Dr. Drury as he comes to speak in a bit, and uh, we're grateful for his presence, and help all of us to be enlightened. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, everyone.